From Washington, D.C., this is On the Ground. We can no longer serve two gods. We must choose capitalism or the pursuit of life with dignity. Capitalism or the pursuit of a life worth living. We must choose now. Our houses are on fire. Cab drivers will hold a victory rally at City Hall celebrating financial reap from taxi medallion debt. To the Bessemer workers, you are courageous. You are fearless. You have risen up against the world's most powerful corporation. Chileans, I receive this mandate with humility and a tremendous sense of responsibility. We have an enormous challenge. I know that in the coming years, the future of our country is at stake. We still have actors in state legislatures in 49 states, and too many of them are succeeding in suppressing the vote and blocking living wages, and blocking police reform, and blocking health care, and blocking education. And so we are not gathered here just to commemorate. In fact, I would dare say we don't need another commemoration. We need a recommitment. Welcome to On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital, I'm Esther Ivarum, and on this show, part two of our year in review for 2021. In part one, we covered the January 6th fascist attack on the U.S. Capitol, the first year of the Biden administration, the conviction of Derek Chauvin for the murder of George Floyd, ongoing cases of police terror and murder, including here in D.C. And finally, we began our discussion of international news with our geopolitical analyst, Professor Gerald Horn, breaking down the latest on the triangular relationship between the United States, Russia, and China. Now we pick up that discussion, starting with the victory of Gabriel Boric and progressive forces in Chile over a far-right follower of the former U.S.-backed dictator, Augusto Pinochet. I think that the victory of the left in Chile is highly significant. Uh, we all recognize that Chile has come a long way since, once again, September 11, 1973, when the socialist regime of Salvador Allende was overthrown in a military coup assisted by U.S. imperialism and the coming to power of the thug known as Augusto Pinochet. By the way, his spouse in her late 90s passed away a day or so before the December 19th victory of the left. In any case, uh, this is significant and it comes on the heels of victories by progressive forces in Peru, the continuation of progressive forces in control in Bolivia, uh, to a certain degree in Argentina, and of course in Venezuela and in Nicaragua, where you saw once again Mr. Ortega uh, prevail despite very uh, stiff opposition uh, from Washington. And I would be remiss in talking about the hemisphere if I failed to acknowledge, number one, the role of Cuba in terms of providing political and ideological support uh, to progressive forces in this hemisphere uh, every step of the way. And as well, a rather unfortunate note, which is the a murder of the president of Haiti uh, just a few months ago, which has plunged that nation into turmoil. 
and in fact has led to a very unfortunate crisis at the U.S. Mexican border just a few months ago, where you saw Haitian refugees being whipped by U.S. Customs and Border Patrol agents, which has led to a major lawsuit. And I should also say that Mexico, which is typical of its historic practice, has opened its doors to accepting more refugees from Haiti. And the same can be said, quite frankly, for Chile, where you have thousands and thousands of Haitian refugees who have found sanctuary in Chile. And if the left had not prevailed in this election on December 19th, the right-wing candidate, the Mr. Cast, had promised and pledged that they would be ousted altogether. So that victory in Chile was significant in more ways than one. I also have to shout out to Honduras because that election, even though it is not as, I don't know, historically resonant as Chile, but when I really think about the recent electoral cycles and how the Obama administration and Hillary Clinton were instrumental in destabilizing Honduras, backing the coup, and backing the ouster of the democratically elected president, Zelaya. When I think about his wife now, Castro, being elected, it just reminds me of everything that the country has been through. I'll never forget during Hillary Clinton's 2016 election when there was video of Latinas basically saying, you know, you murdered Berta, you murdered Berta. And they were talking about Berta Caceres and indigenous leaders like her in Honduras who basically been trying to defend their land against these U.S. Canadian mining interests that want to continue to go into Central and South America and just rape the land, destroy the water, disregard the indigenous people there. And for me, it just really marked the reemergence of an indigenous rights movement uh, connected to the environmental movement. And those people had their sights squarely on Hillary Clinton. And it was almost like she didn't realize how much, because of her actions, she was hated by so many different factions of the voting, traditional voting population, like like Haitians who had her number in terms of what the Clintons did in Haiti. <laughs> then you had the you know, people from Latin America who were very clear about their role in places like Honduras. And one further point, you mentioned the struggle of indigenous peoples and the Mapuche indigenous group of Chile was very instrumental with regard to events in Chile this year. And I found it striking, perhaps historic, that uh, President-elect Borch in Santiago de Chile uh, he spoke in their language in addition to speaking in Spanish during his victory remarks. And that is a very positive sign. And I think that in a certain sense, uh, Chile is following in the footsteps of neighboring Bolivia, which you may recall elected an indigenous leader, Evo Morales, a few years back. And he, of course, is still in support of the current leader, uh, President Arce, in Bolivia. Well, I, I definitely want to keep watching and discussing Chile on this show with you. I understand that the newly elected leader is not necessarily in the camp of, of supporting Venezuela or Cuba. I'm not sure about that, but I want to continue to follow 
I understand that he was a consensus candidate, not necessarily the most left, but uh, given the fact that he was he defeated a fascist, <laughs> perhaps that's the best outcome that they could have there. But there's enormous pressure on Chile. It's a country of only 19 million people. Its major export earner is copper, where U.S. transnational corporations reign supreme. So you are correct to suggest that he has been doing a bit of backsliding with regard to Venezuela in particular, but he is simply the front man, if you like, for the Frente Amplio, the broad front, uh, which consists of tens of thousands, if not millions, that thrust him into office. And I'm confident that the cadre in the broad front will help to keep him in line. Chileans, I receive this mandate with humility and a tremendous sense of responsibility. We have an enormous challenge. I know that in the coming years, the future of our country is at stake. So I guarantee that I will be a president who cares for democracy and does not risk it, listens more than what he speaks, seeks unity, and attends to the needs of the people daily. I will firmly fight against the privileges of a few, and I will work every day for the quality of the Chilean family. Maybe we should switch to the topic that really involves the whole world, which is the climate catastrophe. There was the, we could call it historic meeting of COP26 in Glasgow this year. And of all the speeches there, I guess the one of the most moving and I guess important for me was the prime minister of Barbados. But at COP26, the most energy and the most kind of like righteous kind of movement around the environment was happening outside on the streets with the protests and not so much of what these politicians and corporate lobbyists were doing inside the meeting. But what happened will have a profound impact on whether really not just humanity will survive, but much of life on the planet. You know, I'm an (laughs) eco-pessimist, but... You know, as far as this year in review, what what are your thoughts? Well, with regard to COP26, I agree that what was taking place in the streets of Glasgow was very significant, particularly amongst the youth, particularly uh, raising the slogan of uprooting the system, which ultimately uh, is the way out. Uh, It's going to be next to impossible for this capitalist system based upon profit and exploitation and resource depletion to meet the historic moment presented by this climate emergency. Uh, I should also say that it comes back to what we began discussing, because when you're talking about renewable energy, which was a major theme of COP26, all roads lead back to China, which is in the forefront with regard to green energy with regard to solar energy in particular, which presents quite a dilemma for U.S. imperialism, which has China in the crosshairs. Uh, Speaking of being in the crosshairs, I was quite concerned by a political point that emerged from 
COP26 that we're going to have to keep a very close and careful eye on. What I mean is that I'm sure you recall the so-called responsibility to protect doctrine that was used about a decade ago by U.S. imperialism and its NATO allies to overthrow the Gaddafi regime in Libya because the idea was that the international community had a right to intervene, supposedly, to protect Libyans from human rights catastrophes at the hand of Mr. Gaddafi. And of course, that proved to be fallacious, but now it's being exported to the environment. That is to say that U.S. imperialism and its allies have the responsibility to protect the rainforests of Gabon, for example, or the resources in Congo, for example, uh, from exploitation and depletion. In other words, they have another arrow in their quiver, which will help to justify U.S. imperialism running rampant across the globe and intervening willy-nilly whenever it sees fit. That's so interesting because in all those places you're talking about, it's U.S. corporations and or Canadian or those from Europe that are have historically exploited those areas. So are they going to be like slapping their own hand? <laughs> I don't try to understand the like responsibility to protect you from me, kind of. <laughs> right. Yeah. So uproot the system. That was the cry. And I just remember some of the addresses at the rallies and the just really clear that so many people around the world understand that capitalism is the problem. So this is Peniel Ebay, part of a delegation of Black climate leaders from the Gulf Coast Center for Law and Policy. And she was speaking at a massive rally outside the COP26 in Glasgow. I am an Igbo woman, a Nigerian American, a Black woman, an immigrant at the front line of climate change. We can no longer serve two gods. We must choose capitalism or the pursuit of life with dignity. Capitalism or the pursuit of a life worth living. We must choose now. Our houses are on fire and we can no longer wait for action. Our so-called world leaders want to tell us how to run to safety. Climate justice is migrant justice. It is the right to leave and the right to stay where you call home. We remember today the Haitian migrants who were abused at the U.S. southern border for fleeing a hurricane, an earthquake, and a political crisis due to many actions by the global north. We choose now to fight for the dignity of all. We choose now to make a choice because if we do not make a choice now, it is a death sentence. We will not be sacrificed between two gods. And I just was listening to Vijay Prashad recently, and he said something that stuck with me. He said, if they could show me that capitalism could solve these serious crises like the climate, like housing, like food, like, you know, just our basic survival, the the need to avoid nuclear annihilation and war, then, you know, I'd be down with that. But they can't show me that. They can't show me that capitalism can solve any of these problems. It's just digging a, a deeper grave or a deeper ditch. And to, to put a point on that, before Glasgow even ended, you know, Biden announced like these new like offshore drilling <laughs> that was going to happen here, uh, I think in the Gulf Coast, you know, further dooming those communities that are already considered cancer alley to more pollution of the air, the water. And we still haven't gotten out of the woods from the, the BP horizon, 
you know, leak. So anything more about COP26? Well, basically on, on the question of petroleum, once again, they, the oil industry has been a major force in terms of intervention globally by U.S. imperialism, and they're still up to their old tricks. Uh, we paid attention this year to the attempt by ExxonMobil to drill off the coast of Guyana on the northern coast of South America, and at the same time, trying to turn Guyana against its neighbor to the west, speaking of Venezuela, with which it has had a major boundary dispute for decades now. And even though there is a lot of discussion, understandably, about renewable energy, if you look at the investment that went into the oil industry this year, you would not have known that there was discussion at COP26 in Glasgow about zeroing out that entire industry before the century ends. Since the new world water and every drop counts, you can laugh and take it as a joke if you wanna, but it don't rain a full week some summers, and it's about to get real wild in the half. You be buying every yard to take bath. Heads is acting wild, sipping room, pumping dank, competing with the next man for higher playing rank. So I ain't got time try to be Big Hank. A bank. I need a 20 year water tank Cause while these knuckleheads is out here sweating they good Sun is sitting in the treetops burning the woods And as the flame from the blaze get higher and higher They say don't drink the water, we need it for the fire New York is drinking that New world. No all of California is drinking that New world. Way up north and down south is drinking that New world. Used to have minerals and zinc in that New Now they say it got lead and stink in that New world. Through a and monoxide Push the water table lopsided Used to be free, now of course you will feed Cause all things for their loaders so we're running out of time, but here in D.C., I think, you know, we've been covering the massive, you know, tens of thousands of people marching to uh, basically support Ethiopia, to call out the Biden administration for supporting the TPLF terrorists in that country who have been rampaging through the country, the machinations of, of the State Department in terms of their support and their underhanded role in this whole conflict. But also in that same area, I wanna remind everyone of the fierce resistance of the Palestinian people in May to stand up to this ethnic cleansing of their neighborhoods in East Jerusalem, the storming of the Al-Aqsa Mosque, the subsequent attack on Gaza, because people were standing up and showing the world uh, through video, through a tremendous use of social media that really galvanized people all around the world, Palestinians in the diaspora, all kinds of people to support and to finally understand that and to see that Israel is an apartheid state, it's a racist state, and that they are committing at least ethnic cleansing of the Palestinians. This is Palestinian rights activist Zaina Ashrari Hutchinson speaking at the National March for Palestine in D.C. on March 29th, 2021. Liberation is a right, not a gift. We don't ask for permission to end apartheid. We demand it. We don't ask for permission to return to our homeland. We demand it. We don't ask for permission to free Palestine. 
I definitely want to end in the Horn of Africa and in the Middle East, not forget our brothers and sisters and comrades and allies and in that part of the world. Well, there's an irony of U.S. foreign policy. Uh, as noted, the United States has its hands full focused on China and Russia. And number three, probably on that hit list, is Iran. At the same time, Israel, which is supposedly a close ally of the United States, has exceedingly warm relations with Russia, has been accused of leaking advanced U.S. military technology to China, and at the same time is encouraging Washington to focus like a laser beam on Iran. Now, we know that the nuclear talks resumed in Vienna this year, and we also know that as a result of Mr. Trump uh, pulling out of the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, this uh, nuclear deal with Iran, you have a number of Israeli security officials now claiming that that did not necessarily improve the national security of Israel. And so now Israel, after egging Mr. Trump on, is now trying to egg Mr. Biden on to attack Iran, which would basically open the gates of hell. It would be catastrophic, to put it mildly. Turning to Africa, before we get to the horn, I should also mention these cataclysmic riots that took place in South Africa in the wake of an attempt to arrest and detain former President Jacob Zuma. That issue is still hanging fire. That is to say that he may be going back to prison sooner rather than later. And given the fact that it is summer in the Southern Hemisphere, I would not be surprised if you had further riots, particularly in Durban on the Indian Ocean coast, which is where his base of support is cited, uh, taking place as soon as a few days or weeks from now. With regard to the Horn of Africa, it's not only the crisis in Ethiopia, it's also the fact that you've had considerable unrest in neighboring Sudan. That is to say, there is a real possibility that the prime minister, who was overthrown a few weeks ago, then came back into power, may be stepping down as early as next week, uh, which could mean even larger and more volatile demonstrations that have taken place uh, to this point. With regard to Ethiopia, what I find remarkable are the ups and downs in terms of this struggle. Uh, for example, supposedly we were told a few months ago that the Tigrayan forces were within striking distance of the capital, Addis Ababa. And then we were told that the federal government in Addis Ababa was able to obtain drones from Turkey, the United Arab Emirates, and China, and that turned the tide. But the only problem with that technological emphasis is that the United States had drones in Afghanistan. The United States, in some ways, has masterminded drone technology and warfare, but it did not stop the Taliban from surging to power. And so I think that it's an error to assume that the federal government in Addis Ababa has surged back into strength simply because of drones. I think that you really have to do an analysis of the forces on the ground in order to get a better understanding of what's going on. Well, you know, hopefully more reporters can be on the ground. 
we had one of the few on the ground reports uh, here on our show. And apparently most of the reports in corporate media are coming from like hundreds of miles away, like in Kenya. So uh, it's really important for reporters, especially independent reporters, to actually be there. And that's kind of difficult right now, I think. The uh, State Department at that time told all U.S. residents to leave. (laughs) So maybe that's because they don't want us to be on the ground. But we will keep a watch on all these stories about the globe and our connection here in the belly of the beast. And we'll continue to speak to our geopolitical analyst. Uh, And I want to thank you, uh, Professor Gerald Horn, for um, speaking with me today and for joining us all year to keep us focused on so many of these important issues around the world. Thank you. Thank you. Welcome to the whitest house. Slave souls haunt the halls when the light is out. They suck the blood of the poor and don't wipe their mouth. The last gas of a world that is dying out. Welcome to the whitest house, where every room is a tomb that they lie about. Where you can put your filthy feet on the finest couch. And for the right amount, you can even buy it out. White power, white pride, white privilege. Whites maintain all their rights when whites pillage. White lies, white tears, and white feelings. White supremacy in the White House. The whitest building, ironically, in the place they call Chocolate City. Now all you see is a vanilla sky. That shit will kill your vibe. Turn on the news for the realest lies. Damn, that is just sadder than when children cry. 45 made them want to grab a 45. Nazis, what is this, 1945? Progressive whites so horrified. Black people, like we tried to tell y'all, you ignored the signs. Trudeau, I need a visa, please order mine. Or my Chicano peeps can sneak me through the borderline. That slogan on that red hat was so popular. Who knew it meant marching with torches and waving swastikas? This is On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org. I'm Esther Averam. And as we enter the third year of the COVID-19 pandemic, there are a rising number of cases around the world and here in the United States, where the death toll surpassed 800,000 in mid-December. During this holiday season, airlines have canceled thousands of flights because of COVID outbreaks among crew members. The spread of the new Omicron variant has only highlighted in sharp relief the shortcomings and failures of the U.S. policy in combating COVID. Vaccine makers are still not compelled to share their patents with other countries, only ensuring that the virus will continue to mutate in unvaccinated populations. And only now, two years later, is there a new federal effort to ramp up testing by supplying free take-home tests? But there is still no similar effort to supply to the public high-quality, effective masks or to keep in place safeguards against evictions or exorbitant health care costs. Even the latest CDC guidelines shortening the quarantine period for COVID-positive but asymptomatic workers is seen by many critics as putting corporate profits before the health of people. The economic crisis exacerbated by the pandemic has brought new challenges and opportunities for beleaguered U.S. workers, especially those deemed essential or who must report in person to work sites without mandatory national safeguards. Thomas O'Rourke has more. 
With pandemic-related lockdowns going into a third year in America and around the world, along with the closure of millions of small businesses, many permanently, the displacement and immiseration of millions of workers has simultaneously created a labor shortage in many industries seeking to rebound. Working-class struggle has broken out across diverse industries and sectors. Here's a roundup of labor battles that, whether victory or defeat, have stood out during this past year, culminating in the recently dubbed Strike-tober period of heightened worker struggle. In 2021, there were big wins by workers. A threatened strike by some 60,000 theatrical and stage employees centered heavily but not solely in California and Georgia film and TV production culminated in a deal with more concessions on pay and minimal time off for the many lower-wage production workers from costume and makeup to grips and set builders. A Hollywood shutdown averted after IANSI reached a new deal for its workers to avoid a strike. Eyewitness News reporter Jaysha Patel is live in Burbank with reaction to the deal and what it means for everyone. Jaysha. What we know about the tentative agreement so far is that it goes over issues like reasonable rest time, meal breaks, and wage increases. It also mentions a 10-hour turnaround time between shifts for all workers on all productions. The union's tentative agreement not only affects movies and TV shows, but also the streaming platforms you watch. At John Deere, 10,000 striking members of the United Auto Workers across the Midwest rejected two contract offers before accepting a third one that contained large pay increases over six years, uh, increased pensions, and killed a substandard third tier for new workers. At Kellogg Cereals, an 11-week strike of 1,400 workers at four plants across the eastern United States held firm, and after six versions of contracts were rejected by the rank and file, a seventh was accepted on December 20th, containing across-the-board wage increases, cost-of-living adjustments, expanded health care and retirement benefits, as well as a concession on two-tier by creating an accelerated path from transitional full-time to legacy full-time status. Uh, what we want was fighting against alternative work schedule, what the company wanted to introduce, and they wanted to introduce a permanent two-tier wage system. So we were able to, to get those things taken off the table, along with some different uh, additional things like uh, increased our cost of living allowances for everyone, and also for our pension plan, we got a significant increase to our pension plan. So it was a lot of good things. We didn't have any takeaways and no concessions. So I would say that in essence that we did win. Kellogg's gross sales were up 6% this quarter from the previous years, while profits grew 9% from the previous year. In New York City, taxicab drivers waged 45 days of fierce protests and sit-downs, including weeks of hunger strikes by members to win some $100 million in debt relief from the city of New York. Many drivers desperately needed such concessions after years of fee increases by the city, as well as increased competition from unregulated and non-union Uber and Lyft drivers. Starbucks workers in Buffalo earlier this month voted in the first union to represent workers at one and possibly two stores there. Starbucks has nearly 9,000 outlets across the country, 
and representation elections are pending at other locations in Buffalo, as well as Boston and Mesa, Arizona. At Frito-Lay in July and at Nabisco in August, workers with a battle cry of no contract, no snacks, won concessions from their respective companies over 12-hour days, forced overtime, and the two-tiered contract. One constant refrain this year from workers at such diverse companies as John Deere, Kaiser Permanente, Kellogg's, and UPS is to reject two-tier contracts, which typically offer less pay and benefits to new workers and generally no retirement benefits. Since the 1980s, two-tier has been entrenched at numerous major union employers, such as the U.S. Postal Service, the big three automakers, and higher education faculties everywhere, grad student teachers and adjuncts teaching classes instead of tenured professors. This was reflected as well by changes in welfare laws facilitated by the acquiescence of municipal union leaders that imposed work requirements on recipients so as to create workfare programs that generally replaced unionized jobs such as metro car and bus cleaners and other occupations with non-union semi-slave labor. Several high-profile labor struggles are ongoing and yet to be resolved. The Federal Labor Board has ordered that Amazon employees at Bessemer's Alabama's plant are entitled to a new election with the retail warehouse and department store union after numerous and egregious examples of unfair labor practices by Amazon in Bessemer during 2020. During a Poor People's Campaign event supporting the union drive, SEIU President Mary Kay Henry said this. The two million members of SEIU and the millions more fighting for 15 and a union have a message to the Bessemer workers. You are courageous, you are fearless, and you are already winning. You have risen up against the world's most powerful corporation owned by the world's richest man, and you're doing it in a state that has a history of siding with corporations overworking people. At the International Brotherhood of Teamsters, the newly elected president, Sean O'Brien, replacing James Hoffa Jr., committed to taking on the huge task of organizing Amazon delivery drivers and eliminating a two-tier contract at the United Parcel Service, or UPS. At Warrior Met Coal in central Alabama, 1,100 unionized coal miners are still on strike since April 1st. An Alabama judge recently extended an injunction against the union forbidding picketing within 300 feet of entrances. Production continues using scab labor. Union and non-union school bus drivers have staged upwards of 10 sick-outs and short strikes in Indiana, Maryland, Kentucky, Florida, New Mexico, North Carolina, and Georgia this fall, centered on pay and benefits, as well as COVID safety protocols and practices. 
and here in Washington, D.C., a high percentage of workers at three politics and prose bookstores are seeking union recognition and representation by the UFCW, United Food and Commercial Workers, Union. During December, store owners who previously hired the known union-busting law firm Jones Day said that they had decided not to contest union representation for its staff and would seek to begin negotiations in the weeks ahead. For On the Ground, this is Thomas O'Rourke. This is On the Ground, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. I'm Esther Ivarum. Now, just as 2021 began in D.C. with a violent plot to overturn the presidential election and, in effect, overturn the certified will of voters, much of the year was spent by voting rights activists fighting to secure federal voting protections in the wake of an avalanche of voter suppression laws passed in Republican-controlled states. These laws, including those in the pivotal state of Georgia, as well as in Texas and Florida, target black, brown, indigenous, and young voters. On the 50th anniversary of the 1963 March on Washington, the Make Good Trouble rally was held on the National Mall to protest for voting protections, as well as for other human rights, such as protection from police terror and for the rights of health care, education, and the rights of immigrants and refugees. The Reverend William Barber, co-chair of the Poor People's Campaign, was among the speakers. 
my brothers and sisters, 58 years ago, a preacher from Georgia stood on these steps and declared, in the face of racism and economic justice, a nightmare. A nightmare that was lengthened by congressional and state filibustering. He said that day, I have a dream that one day down in Alabama, with his vicious racists, with his governors, lips dripping with the words of interposition and nullification, one day right there in Alabama, little black boys and black girls will be able to join hands with little white boys and white girls as sisters and brothers. He also said on behalf of the people that day, we can't be satisfied and we will not be satisfied. His dream was not an abstract dream, but a concrete hope rooted in a, a demand for jobs and living wages and voting rights. In fact, the march that day was the march for jobs and justice. He wanted his children and all children and another generation to come to know the best that was possible in this nation. Now that was 58 years ago, but still today we can't be satisfied. And we would do well to remember that the legal basis for the very personal source of Dr. King's agony as he stood here that day and first told America about the nightmare, all of that came from state legislatures passing bad laws from the bottom up. The constitutional and moral crisis we face today is the direct result of forces in state legislatures that have organized to push back against the progressive voice and power in this country. It is not just an attack on black people. It is an attack on justice and the progressive voice in this nation. And this, and this attack is allowed because we don't have sufficient federal protections. We still have actors in state legislatures in 49 states, and too many of them are succeeding in suppressing the vote and blocking living wages, and blocking police reform, and blocking health care, and blocking education. And so we are not gathered here just to commemorate. In fact, I would dare say we don't need another commemoration. We need a recommitment. We need a reconsecration. We're not here just for something that happened a long time ago. No, no, we're not here just to have a day. We are here today to continue the work of our foreparents to expand democracy until we are one nation under God, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. In fact, we cannot reduce our movements to single issue protests. And anybody that tries to lead you on a single issue protest is a misleader and not a leader. Our issues are as complicated as our blood system and our nervous system in our bodies. And so we're here today. We've come together from many corners to lay out a vision, demand action, to address the interlocking injustices and the interlocking evils of systemic racism, systemic poverty, ecological devastation, the war economy, and the false moral narrative of Christian nationalism. So we declare and we demand that if we pass the For the People's Act, and the Voting Rights Restoration Act, we could stop James Crow Esquire and Jean Crow Esquire. Laws that are designed to hurt black people and white people and brown people and native people and poor people and rural people and urban people and the, and the working people and the disabled. 
We could institute elections that would be fair and full. We could make sure that everybody, every eligible voter can vote. If we pass the For the People's Act, all that they're doing in the states becomes illegal immediately. If we pass the Voting Rights Act restoration, then they have to go through preclearance. If we end the filibuster, we could do it all and do it all right now. If we instituted a $15 minimum wage, living wage, we could raise 32 million people out of poverty and low wealth immediately and pump $328 billion into the economy immediately. If we pass a full inhumane economic budget and infrastructure plan, we can end poverty and low wages from the bottom up. If we had put the $6.4 trillion we have poured into endless wars since 9-11, if we had put it into green energy, we could have built a renewable energy across this country and infrastructure with mere trillions of dollars to spare. If we stop housing evictions, we can prevent millions from being thrown out in the street. If we restored the corporate tax rate to what it was before Trump, we could raise $130 billion and provide early child care and education for every child in this country. And we can do it. We can do it. We have to make this nation face its moral crisis. We have to make this nation ask the question, what does it profit America to hold on to a filibuster and get a limited infrastructure bill and lose the soul and the infrastructure of our democracy? What does it profit America to hold on to an infrastructure and not lift 140 million Americans out of poverty and low wealth? And so it's time. It's time for a full moral movement to shift the moral narrative and build power, especially among the 140 million poor and low wealth people that now make up 30% of the electorate. This is the time. And it's not about Democrat. And it's not about Republican. It's not about left. It's not about right. right. It's about right versus wrong. Now is the time. And if I could borrow from Martin Luther King, Anybody who tries to criticize these demands and say they are somehow anti-American and wrong, well, if our demands for full justice are wrong, then the Constitution is wrong. If our demands are wrong, then the Bible is wrong when it says in Isaiah 10, woe unto those who legislate evil and rob the poor of their rights. If our demands are wrong, somebody better check Jesus because he said the nation would be judged. When I was hungry, did you feed me? When I was naked, did you clothe me? When I was in prison, did you see about me? When I was sick, did you heal me? But the truth is, Liz, our call for voting rights and living wages and police reform and health care and climate are not wrong. They are right. And they really are the only thing worth spending our lives for. If you're still alive in the, in the midst of COVID, then you ought to use every breath you have to change this nation. We made a decision in Afghanistan 20 years ago wrong because too many didn't have the courage to say no. We can't make that mistake now when it comes to saying no to those that want to take our country back.
And if we don't do this work, I fear for this nation. But we will do it. We have to do it. Because we refuse to give up on the possibility of America. These demands of justice are non-negotiable. And they cannot be watered down. There is no moderate position when it comes to justice. And that's why we come together. We work together. 58 years ago, black women weren't allowed on this stage. But 58 years later, they're leading this stage. 58 years ago, they didn't have Latinos on this stage. But today they are. 58 years ago, there were no white main speakers. But today they are. There were no brothers and sisters from Appalachia and Alabama. There were no LGBTQ folk on the stage openly. There were no native and Asian. But today they are because we must come together. We must build a movement together. We all are being attacked by the same forces, Mark. The same people that are against black folk, are against Latino folk, are against women, are against gay people, are against Asians are against voting rights, are against health care, are against living wages. And if they are cynical enough to be together, we got to be smart enough to come together. And so I close the day by saying there's power in coming together. During the slavery, it looked like slavery had won. But when Harriet Tubman and Frederick Douglass got together with some white Quakers and some white evangelicals like, like William Lord Garrison, they tore slavery down. Women didn't have the right to vote. But when Sojourner Truth, a black woman, got with Lucretia Mott, a white woman, they marched together in the streets of this city and they won the right to vote. It looked like monopolies would have the last word. But at the turn of the 20th century, when multiracial coalition decided it was time together, come together, white and black labor people came together and won labor laws. It looked like Jim Crow had beaten down injustice, but then Rosa Parks and Martin King and a gay guy named Bayard Ruster and a black woman named Fannie Lou and another brother named Bob Moses got together with white folk like Glenn Smiley and Jonathan Davis and Viola Lewusa and James Reed and they tore Jim Crow down. In the 19th century, when poor white farmers and formerly enslaved people got together, they built the first reconstruction, a fusion movement, and won the 14th, 15th amendments to the Constitution and the Civil Rights Act of 1875. And I must tell you, as I make my way to North Carolina, they told me I might never walk again. But when the prayer warriors got together, and the doctors got together, and my family got together, and, and my faith got together, and my swim coach got together. I can jump now. I can walk now. There's power when we come together. And so y'all, let's come together. And if we come together, God will help us. The spirit will help us. Tamika, the ancestors will help us. And the whole nation will thank us. And generations yet born will call our name. Let's come together black and white and brown and native and Asian and young and old and gay and straight and Christian and Hindu and Muslim and Jewish and even persons who don't have a religious faith but they believe in the moral arc of the universe. Together! Until the poor are lifted. Together! 
until the workers are paid. Together until the sick are healed. Lord, help me here. Together until voting is guaranteed. Together until unmerciful house evictions are stopped. Together until police killing is stopped. Together until land and water is not poisoned. Together until war is not pushed and promoted and promulgated. Together until humanity is respected and children are protected and civil rights and labor rights and human rights are never neglected. Let us be together until these things are actualized. Let us never be satisfied. And if we come together, if we work non-violently together to change this nation, we will change it. And there will be something said about our work. When we all got together, what a day. What a day, what a day, what a day, what a day of justice it will be when we all get together. What a day, what a day, what a day. And the Reverend William Barber will have the last word on today's show for 2021. And that's very fitting as the Poor People's Campaign has been and continues to be a major voice speaking truth to power in the face of a bold rise of the far right exhibited on January 6th at the start of the year. And just as the Poor People's Campaign is planning to continue the fight in the new year, On the Ground plans to stay on the ground as well in 2022, bringing voices of resistance from the nation's capital to you. At our website, onthegroundshow.org, you can check out all of our current and past shows and you can contact us there and support us there as well. You can also let us know you like the show on Facebook, Twitter, or on patreon.com at On The Ground Show. Our podcast is On The Ground with Esther Ivarum and you can subscribe on all of your podcast platforms. The music we play this hour included New World Water by Yasin Bey. Lift Every Voice and Sing by The Black Alley and The White's House by Jaziri X. Performed live at the Make Good Trouble Rally. Our theme music is Voodoo Child by Jimi Hendrix. And I want to mention that the Kellogg's worker and union leader uh, speaking in the labor segment earlier in the show was Kevin Bradshaw of Tennessee, and he was speaking to Democracy Now! I'm Esther Ivarum. Until next time, take good care. And keep raising your voice in the new year. Peace.